we're continuing our series in the book of James uh, called Faith That Isn't Dead. Uh, when God uh, came to the earth in the person of Jesus and uh, took on human flesh and walked among us and ultimately died for our sins on the cross, uh, he came to give us life. This is what we know. He came to set us free from the weight of our sin, from being held back by uh, an inability to do what was right. The Bible says we are slaves to our own sin nature. But Jesus came to set us free from that so that we could live. One of the things we recognize, though, is that that can be a struggle. We can put our faith and trust in Jesus and know that our sins are forgiven. We're going to spend eternity with him in heaven and yet live in continual battle against sin and sometimes losing that battle more than we're winning it. And so that is the nature of the book of James. The good news is this battle and struggle isn't new. Uh, it started in the early church as soon as those first few Jewish uh, folks put their faith in Jesus and began to try to follow him. And so the book of James is written by Jesus' half-brother, one of Jesus' brothers uh, to Joseph and Mary. And so James really, uh, the best we can tell, doesn't look like he really believed in Jesus, didn't really think he was who he claimed to be while he was walking the earth and doing his ministry. But then when he died on the cross, uh, the First uh, Corinthians 15, I think it is, tells us that, that he appeared, Jesus, resurrected Jesus, appeared to James. And all of a sudden, that seems to be the moment where he went from a doubter and a skeptic to a believer. And uh, so much so that he became a leader in the early church. He led, probably was the main leader, apostle, pastor um, of the church in Jerusalem, which of course is where it all started. And so he was a believer. And James is speaking to a, a group of Jewish Christians who are struggling with some of the old stuff that has been drug into their new life in Christ. And part of that is more of a focus on the external than the internal. And so he's going to address in this that, listen, if you believe in Jesus and you put your trust in him, to us today in America, we'd say if you're a Christian, then there's things that need to be changing in your life. There's, there's uh, uh, character traits and there's a transformation in how you treat people. And that's one of the things we're going to see today. Faith That Isn't Dead is the series title. Our big idea for today is show no favoritism. Show no favoritism. Again, James chapter 2 is where we're at if you want to follow along in your Bible. But here's what we uh, uh, see right away. Is that favor, favoritism <clears throat> is not just a problem today. It was a problem 2,000 years ago. Have you ever been, uh, felt like you were subject to being ignored or looked past uh, because uh, there was something about you that didn't connect with the group you were in or the place you were at and watch someone else get treated special and get treated like they were important. Maybe you notice that. Sometimes we do. Uh, perhaps you're on the other side of that where you were, are showed favoritism um, and other people uh, around you are not. Um, this is something we probably all have experienced at some point. And uh, if, even if we got to go back to junior high, right, we all probably experienced it there. But it's a reality of uh, the human condition, of the human race. We categorize people. We treat people differently. We put people into categories of value. And so we have this hierarchy that we play in. And uh, some people want to be in the, they want to move up that ladder and they want to be recognized and be in a position where they're treated uh, well and, and with favor, right? And some people don't care so much about that. But the truth is that it's an issue. And, and uh, one of the things that I notice 
and recognize as you follow Jesus, as God works in your life, is one of the key things that will change is how you view other people and how you treat people. And before you trust in Jesus, there are probably people that you don't like. You don't really want anything to do with them. You look down on them. But after you follow Jesus, he starts to change your heart towards people. And you'll see them differently. You'll see them over time. Okay? Over time. But we'll see them the way God sees them. We have this ability when Jesus is dwelling within us and the Holy Spirit's at work within us and we're interacting with the scriptures that we don't see the costume or the outward um, appearance of people, which is how we typically do, but we start to look past that and see people's hearts. And, and so one of the questions we ask in this passage right away is, how does God view people? If that change is supposed to happen, how does God view people? How does he, uh, does he place different value on different people? One of the theological questions we might ask, which some people, um, their theological construct or what they believe might lend towards this. Did God create some people just to reject them and send them to hell? Or does God view everyone the same? And so um, James, again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I mention his name a lot simply because he's the human author. And I think he's an important, it's important. God wrote this epistle through him. But it's the Holy Spirit that is directing him, and so we get God's truth through him. And so uh, here's the truth, though. The first principle we see in this passage, and again, we're talking about faith that isn't dead. So a living faith is impartial. A living faith is impartial. Look at verse 1 of James chapter 2. My dear brothers and sisters, James writes, How can you claim to have faith in our our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, If you favor some people over others. Jesus Christ, again, God in the flesh. He reflected the glory of God perfectly. He revealed to us, the human race, exact representation of God himself. So in Jesus, we see God. In Jesus' behavior, we see God's behavior. In Jesus' heart, we see God's heart. And James says, how can you claim to follow him and then favor some people over others. This is incongruent. <laughs> Those things can't go together. And we got to ask the question, well, why? Is it really true that those things are incongruent? Where does that come from? And of course, it really all begins, it starts and ends in the character of God. Who is God turns into who are we supposed to be? And if our behaviors are challenged in the Bible, it's because they're not lining up with the character of God. And so what does the scripture say about this impartiality and about how God views us? Ephesians chapter 6, Paul giving instructions uh, about how people should relate to each other inside the church. He says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way, which is with kindness. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven. You both answer to the same person which is Jesus Christ. And lastly, he says, and he, that master, has no favorites. He's not favoring some because they have a position of power over others. Uh, We don't, fortunately, um, the word of God and what Jesus did and who Jesus was has uh, moved the human race to a place of realizing and recognizing slavery is not the correct way for human uh, human beings to interact. 
though we probably have as many slaves today in the world as we've ever had or there's ever been, maybe more, but we've recognized, at least in the West, this is an uh, abhorrent and we've moved away from the practice. And so I think modern day translation of this would be employee and employer. And so the, uh, Paul's saying again, how do you treat each other? And he's saying inside of this relationship, there should be uh, good harmony and respect and, and treating each other well and recognizing each other as human beings that have value before God. He's, he's saying if you're an employer or you're an employee, one of you is not more valuable than the other. But before God, there's equal value. And so we treat each other in relation to that. And it starts in, notice he starts it in, the character of God. Romans chapter 2 verse 11 says simply these words, For God does not show favoritism. God does not have favorites and he doesn't show favoritism. He is not looking at the human race and picking some individuals to favor over others. And aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful for that, really? I mean, even the disciples, you know, a couple of them were like, hey, Jesus, we want to be on your right hand and your left hand. We want to be important, right? And uh, of course, Jesus didn't encourage that way of thinking. Right? It's like, that's going to cost you to move into those spots. You don't get them by uh, having ambition and wanting to get to those spots. You get to those places by your character and by serving and by sacrifice. At any rate, God doesn't show favoritism. In Romans, Paul is addressing the relationship between Jew and Gentile. Jewish people were chosen by God. They were the chosen people of God. They felt pretty good about that too. And they looked down on anybody that wasn't a Jew. They called them Gentiles. And they were not God's people and God didn't really care about them, right? They were lower status. And yet in the New Testament, we see that in Jesus, the gospel is offered to all. And so Paul reflects on God's character. He doesn't show favoritism. He's not valuing some people over others. Now we have something going on in our culture. You may have heard of this. That is a push towards what sounds like equality. And what sounds like seeing everyone the same within our country. And it's a little thing that goes by... um, the, uh, it's kind of an acronym, but it goes by um, the letters DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, <clears throat> don't get scared. I, I know this kind of is put in a political realm, but it really isn't. It has to do with morality. It has to do with how we treat each other. And all I want to do is put up the scripture against what comes out of our culture. We need to do that. As Christians, we need to be critical thinkers. We need to look at what's happening in our culture and evaluate, is this really from God and does it really line up? And so diversity, equity, and inclusion can sound like good ideas that might be coming from even what we're learning in this passage regarding not showing favoritism. The definition of diversity as it's being presented in our culture is all the ways in which people differ. Sounds pretty good, all the diversity of humanity, and there is a diversity of humanity, the way God created us, different uh, skin colors, different nationalities, different ethnicities, different cultures, all of that within the scope of what God created, different genders, God created us male and female, so there's a diversity, and we see in the New Testament church, there is to be a unity in the midst of diversity, and that there is supposed to be um, uh, equality even. Galatians, I think Paul says, there's no male or female, slave or free, no Jew or Gentile. Those, um, those identifying markers in the church, we are in the same place. We come in the same condition to the foot of the cross. Equity in our little 
um, cultural experiment here is referred to as the fair treatment, access, opportunity, and advancement of all people. One's identity cannot predict the outcome. Again, doesn't sound really that, um, it doesn't sound bad. It sounds like it could be a good thing. Um, Making sure that fairness is the way that people are treated in our country sounds good, potentially. And then inclusion is the variety of people. A variety of people have power, a voice, and decision-making authority. If you're paying attention in our culture, these things are being pushed with some force, sometimes with some legal ramifications. And so it's a big deal. (laughs) What are we going to do with this? And I know some of us are put in situations where we don't have a choice what to do with it. If you're in government or education, there's areas where um, the implementation of these things is being uh, forced. You don't really have a lot of say in it. But I want to evaluate from a biblical standpoint as Christians, are these things coming from God's word? When James teaches us that God is not, uh, does not show favoritism, is this what he's talking about? And uh, the truth is, like I said, the Bible does teach us that our treatment of each other is going to be with sincerity. We're not going to uh, treat each other poorly based on power positions, based on um, uh, um, how things are set up in our culture and in our homes and in our churches. We're to treat each other with love and kindness with a softness towards each other. That's, the, that's what's supposed to happen within us. And James is going to challenge that a lot in his epistle, that if we don't do that, we have the threat and danger of destroying each other because we're so angry and, and so aggressive and our conflict gets so intense that, that we, can, we can end up destroying the very thing that we need and that we love, which is the church. And so he challenges this very heavily. We are to be treating each other with goodness, good-natured interaction. But do, um, does this diversity, equity, inclusion that is coming in our culture really reflect what the Bible teaches? Again, one of the things that I would note is that the Bible doesn't eliminate power structure. There is diversity, okay? And diversity should be reflected in us, but God doesn't eliminate, it, for instance, in the family. He doesn't say, hey, husbands and wives, you're the same. <laughs> he says, husbands, you're the head of the house, You're supposed to be in charge there. You take a leadership role and that's required of you, right? And so um, uh, those power positions are not eliminated in the word of God. He doesn't eliminate government. He doesn't take it away. uh, In Romans, we see the explanation of the purpose of government. Even amongst employee-employer, these dynamics, um, they're not eliminated in Scripture. What we're taught is how we're to interact with each other and treat each other. And so one of the things we see in our culture that I a view as a real um, danger in, in diversity as it's being presented, all the ways in which people differ, is that that diversity for Christians is going to fit inside of God's parameters for us. God's created us with a certain capacity for diversity, but then it's limited. And the human race always wants to go beyond what God's created. right? And so he created us male and female, and the nature of our relationships when it comes to sexual orientation, is supposed to be between male and female. And yet, of course, we have human beings that, that stretch outside of that and struggle with that. And with gender, we, of course, have a diversity of gender now, so much so that we've got uh, just over 100 genders, and maybe it's grown to a couple hundred, but there's a desire, and I understand underneath that is just a, a desire to fit in and discover who I am, and I know human beings struggle with that. Augustine, one of the church leaders, in the first couple hundred years, he said, we have a God-shaped hole in us only can be filled from a relationship with God. And so it doesn't surprise me that the human race 
continues to try to find new ways to discover who we are. And that that's a struggle. And I get that. I'm not disillusioned by it. I'm not angry by it. But, but I got to ask the question, are we going down a road that's going to lead to goodness for our people and for our culture? And diversity, when it includes going beyond to the manipulation of our bodies, to the introduction of um, testosterone blockers or testosterone, things that are going to try to change who I am from one gender to another, um, I'm just looking at it going, this is not what God intended. It's only going to create pain. It's only going to create hardship for us. And so, yeah, diversity sounds really good, and it is, but the way it's being presented in this construct, there's a problem with it because it goes beyond what God says. We need to be aware of that as people who are trying to follow God. Equity. Um, Equity as it's being presented, again, means equality of outcome, that everyone is going to succeed. I would love to see everyone succeed. In God's economy, remember God says, um, or the Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but all would spend eternity in heaven with him. But we also don't see God um, guaranteeing that outcome. Rather, God is about equality of opportunity, that, that every person gets the opportunity to put their trust in Jesus. Okay, so there's a difference in equity as it's being presented in our culture, which is the promotion and the push that we're going to ensure that people advance from every group and every, we're going to select people regardless of what they're doing and the choices they're making. We're just going to ensure it because of an outcome that we have pre-selected and predetermined. And I'm telling you that God doesn't do that. We don't see that in the scriptures, in my opinion. We don't see it working out that way. We see not universalism where everybody gets into heaven, but we see God loving everybody and wanting them to get there. But they have a decision to make. They have a responsibility in the outcome. Inclusion. Um, Inclusion, again, means that everybody has a say. Everybody has power and decision-making power. And again, in a, in a culture that's diverse, I get it. I'm not, that's not entirely wrong. Uh, there needs to be representation in the people in our country. But there's a, a danger in elevating everyone, no matter what they believe in, no matter what their moral code is, no matter how they live their lives. You elevate everyone, you, end up, uh, you can really end up with just a mess. That we don't really have a country that reflects good character. We don't, we're not going a good direction. And in the Bible, God elevates people that, believe in him, that honor him, that live for him. Those are the individuals that should be given authority in our world. So again, I'm not seeing this acronym, this this whole presentation as a good move in our country. It seems to me like a push in a direction that's going to cause more problems. And so you may not agree with me. I'm not trying to push that on you. I want you to consider it, but look at it through the grid of scripture. I think that's what we need to do. I am thankful for those in our church and our community who love God and are following him that God has put in positions of power and authority. It's so important. If we're going to have a culture that reflects God, which ends up being good for everyone, the best for everyone, then we need people who are living for God, right, in positions. So we live according to God's character. Again, this is the measure And when it comes to diversity, when it comes to treating people differently, we know that God doesn't do that. And so if we call ourselves Christians, we're going to live according to a different value system than the rest of the world. And so the second principle we see in this passage is that living faith rejects the world's value system. A living faith rejects the world's value system. Look at James chapter 2. Let's read a couple more verses 
verses 2 through 7. So he now illustrates the principle he, he presented in verse 1. He says, for example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry. And another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, well, you can stand over there in the corner or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom uh, he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? James illustrates his point. (laughs) Treating one group better than another is not coming from God's character. And so he illustrates it by giving them an example that likely they were seeing in their churches. That there are wealthy people coming in and poor people coming in. They find their way into the public gathering of believers. He said, if you have a wealthy person come in and a poor person come in and you grab that wealthy person and you make sure they meet the pastor and you make sure they get a good seat and they get a cup of coffee and you really take care of them, but you ignore the poor person that comes in because they don't have the right name. They didn't come from the right side of the tracks. You're not impressed by them. You're like, ah, why are they doing here? You know, he said, that, that's the wrong thing. Your heart's wrong in this. You're viewing things from evil motives. To discriminate like that, to look at people that way and to make judgments about who they are based on their status in culture. It's sin, right? And so he illustrates it. Now, this illustration that he uses, the wealthy and the poor, he could have used other criteria. He could have said, if somebody comes in your church that has played or is playing for the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, and you run up and greet them and make sure they're, they know they're welcome. Thank you for coming to our church. You give them preferential treatment. But somebody comes in that uh, maybe moved here from Colorado. <laughs> hey, if you moved here from Colorado, God bless you. I did too. <laughs> uh, listen, <laughs> but if, if, if you see that and you go, oh, you kind of want to ignore them. You know, right? What are they doing here? Listen, that's preferential treatment. He's saying you can't do that. Now, this can, this can hit close to home for all of us. We all, we all have a tendency to want to walk this way. And, and we got to be careful because James is going to say, look, um, uh, oftentimes the people you're favoring, and in his example, there's historical context here. He's like, you're favoring the rich person, but it's the rich people that are oppressing you. I mean, there were groups of wealthy individuals in, in the early New Testament church era, the first 100 years, 200 years, and they were the ones who produced a lot of opposition to the movement of Jesus. The Sadducees were one group. They were uh, influential leaders within uh, Judaism. Uh, there was the Pharisees. Uh, they were the ones that were really uh, concerned about following the law and, and super uh, concerned about that. And, and then the Sadducees were religious leaders, but they were in bed with Rome. They wanted to benefit financially from Rome's involvement. And Rome had a lot of wealth. And so they compromised on the religious side of things, but they built a relationship that was lucrative for them with Rome. They were some of the greatest oppressors of the early church. And then we've got stories in the book of Acts where Paul would go into a Roman colony, one of these cities within the Roman Empire. Ephesus was one of them. He went in, he's preaching the gospel. People are responding. The whole city is listening to him. 
And then there's a guy named Demetrius who's got a business making little silver idols for the goddess Artemis. And there was a temple for Artemis in Ephesus and he got concerned about his business. And so he causes a whole stir and upheaval about Paul tries to get him killed. How about in Philippi? Those two individuals, those businessmen that had this little slave girl who could do fortune telling and foretell the future. And then Paul casts a demon out of her. All of a sudden she can't do it anymore. And they cause a great uh, problem. They're trying to get Paul killed or imprisoned. James is like, listen, guys, you're, you're favoring the people who in our world are actually against you. I mean, think about it, you know. Why are you doing this? Now, he wasn't coming down on wealthy people. That wasn't his point. The point is to address the issue of favoritism. It's not how we should behave. We have got to be different people. We've got to treat everyone with honor and dignity. We've got to seek to understand where people are coming from. Um, Mary and I got to spend quite a few years in Atlanta, and we, we worked in a very impoverished area, and it challenged our thinking about people that are in a different category than we are. Uh, in our church, we had a guy come in. He would come in in a dress every week in kind of a wig that was a little uh, off kilter, but um, he would come in every week. And, and of course, our first reaction, anybody's first reaction, it's a little odd, and you're a little... Um, might be a little confused by that kind of behavior, but we uh, allowed him to come. We got to know him. His name was Chris, and, and we really got to know Chris, and we uh, allowed him <laughs> to hang out with us, and we just talked about Jesus, and we taught the Bible, and Chris was there for uh, over a year with us, and we had to close the thing down and leave, and I mean, he was really heartbroken because we were leaving, because uh, people need to be viewed as people. It doesn't matter who they are. And we can be off-put by people. We can be concerned about people's behavior. But what's our reaction to it? Is it to push them away, to shun them? Or is it to do what Jesus did, which is to walk up and engage and speak the truth in love and, and have a relationship and work past our issues with people? I think this is where God wants us to go. Sometimes we value people based on the wrong things. Like the story about the Chicago bank looking to hire a new employee, a new executive for their bank. And there was a Bostonian young man who came from Boston who wanted, uh, had applied for the job. And so they reached out to the firm, the investment house that he had, uh, that knew him, familiar with him. And, and they said, hey, what do you think about this young man? We need a reference here. Well, they were excited. They knew this young man, his father. They wrote back in their letter, was a Cabot, he was a noteworthy man in Boston. His mother was a Lowell, a person of prominence. Furthermore, um, as you go back in his family, there were other family names that were important in Boston and had high pedigree. And so they said, oh yeah, we recommend this guy. No problem. You want him at your firm. Well, they got the letter and they sent back a response. They said, we appreciate your response. It really isn't helpful for us. We're not looking at this young man for breeding purposes. <laughs> We're looking to hire him for a job and we need to know if he can do it. Sometimes we look at people the wrong way, through the wrong criteria. God and James in this passage, he's challenging us. You know, God looks at different things. He looks at us differently. Look in the Old Testament, the kings of Israel, 
You probably know Saul was the first king. He was chosen because he looked like a king. He was tall and good looking and he was aggressive and he led Israel into battle. It's like, oh, this guy's our king. And so he got put in a position. The problem is he didn't want to obey God. And so God rejected him as king. And the next young man that God chose was kind of an unlikely guy. David, when Samuel first went out to Jesse's family, right? God said, I'm going to show you which of his sons is going to be king. Samuel gets out there and he sees the oldest, the young man looks like he could be king. Oh, he must be him. And remember, God says to Samuel, no, he's not the next king. I've rejected him. Don't look at him the way other people do. He goes, don't look at his height and his stature and his, his appearance. I don't look at people the way man does. I don't judge people on exteriors. I judge people on their heart. And so David, who was the youngest and who was pretty small initially and didn't look like he was going to be very aggressive, he was kind of a loner. He was a musician, you know, and a poet. I mean, he spent time with sheep. You know, he didn't look like the next king, but he was a fierce warrior. He had a heart for God. He became the greatest king that Israel ever had. You and I need to allow our presuppositions about people to be challenged. See, living faith the last thing we see in this passage is that living faith loves doing right towards others. Look at verses 8 through 13 of James chapter 2. Yes, indeed, James goes on to say, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. He's talking about the law of Moses. Love your neighbor as yourself, for example. It's great that you do that. It's the right thing. It's what you should do. Verse 9, but if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. In my house, when my kids were growing up, every once in a while, one of them would make a complaint to the um, management. And the complaint was, things aren't being done in a fair manner. (laughs) You know, it's not fair. Dad, it's not fair. And I would say, lovingly, but with some emphasis. Fair is not what you want. Fair will not go in your favor. You're not looking at the situation accurately, right? And so the same thing's true of us and God. You know, to want things to be just and fair all the time, it's not what we should be asking for. Um, James pushes in on these Jewish Christians who are following the law. They're good people. In our culture, it'd be good Christians, He says, listen, if you are doing a great job at following the law, that's awesome. You should be. But if you're showing favoritism to people, you're in sin. And you may not recognize there's a sin issue there. And if you have that sin issue, as good as you might be doing it, everything else, you're still guilty of breaking all of it. And he said, you're not going to be judged by the law of Moses. You're going to be judged by the law that sets us free. And that's the law of grace. Gently and lovingly, he's trying to encourage them. You're not under the law of Moses anymore. We're under the law of grace. That means 
actually more is expected of us. We can't just keep an external law. And of course, if you read the Bible, it's, it's shown to us that that law was unable to save us anyway. It just showed us our sin, that we were incapable of doing the right thing. But when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us and the Spirit of God comes in us, now we can live differently. We can be different people. And so James challenges and encourages them. You may be doing a great job at a lot of things that matter, but you're missing something over here. How you're treating each other. It's not right. It's a sin issue and you need to address it. Ultimately, he kind of ends with this principle that we see in the scriptures that how we treat others is going to be a direct proportion to how God treats us. And we see, taught by Jesus, that if we don't forgive others, we're not going to experience God's forgiveness. Here, James says, if you don't show mercy to others, you're not going to get God's mercy. Now, I don't think this is talking about our eternal position with God, our our salvation, where we go when we die. I don't think that's what James is addressing here. But I do think he's addressing the practical reality that if you and I live in such a way that we treat people in a way that doesn't honor how God treats them and it doesn't reflect what God's trying to do in us, that we're going to experience a distancing in our relationship with God. We can't be walking with God and living in close fellowship with God and experiencing the life that he wants to give us if we're walking in unforgiveness towards others, if we're not showing mercy to others. It's going to affect us. We do not understand the pot we put ourselves in and the nature of uh, the environment we put ourselves in when we refuse to forgive, when we refuse to show mercy. These things are core to who we are as people of God. And we've got to move into them as behaviors and we've got to gain the maturity and the discipline not to get harder hearted towards people, but to have softer hearts. I think this is one of the things that God's working in me the most, and it's not easy. Uh, it feels like he's got a hammer and he's chipping off some pretty rough edges. But God is really pressing into me about when somebody does something that I feel is wrong, when it hurts, how do I respond? Am I getting softer? Am I getting kinder? Am I, is humility what I'm walking in so that I love that person more? Or am I getting hurt and offended and angry? How am I responding? Showing mercy to others reflects the fact that I know I need God's mercy every day. Do you know what you really need from God on a daily basis? Do you recognize that it's not that you're doing pretty good, it's that you need God's forgiveness every day too. You need his mercy every day, just like I do, just like we all do. And if we begin to think we don't, that's the problem. And so to have an awareness of our condition and our situation, and it helps us be able to give others what we're supposed to give them as children of God. Sometimes in this life, we value the wrong things. We put value on the wrong stuff. And so we will treat people poorly so that we can get the stuff that we think matters and is valuable when really we need to gain God's perspective on the world, which is that people are what matter. We should be growing in how we treat others not so much growing at our ability to acquire more things, for instance, like the guy that died and it was time for him to go to heaven, fortunately. And so he had an interaction with God and he said, God, I want to take something with me. It's really valuable to me. It's really important to me. And God said, you can't take anything to heaven. No. And, and, and he pushed back, God, please, I got to take this. Please let me take it. And finally, God relented. Fine, you can take it. And so he had some gold that he wanted to take and he put it into a suitcase and he muscled over his shoulder and went up to heaven. 
And when he got there, there were some angels at the gate that greeted him. And he comes in with this big bag full of gold. And they said, uh, sir, sir, stop. You can't bring anything in here. He said, well, God said I could. And I'm like, well, what do you got in that bag? So he very proudly opened the bag and displayed the gold that was in it. One of the angels, you know, you can see a bunch of angels are like, what has he got? That's such a big deal. Well, one of the angels looked in the bag and they said, oh, and they looked to the rest and said, it's just pavement. <clears throat> I mean, come on. <laughs> the things that we think are so important here in this life, when we get into eternity, they're going to be very small. The things that matter in this life are the people around us, the people God's put in our lives. And sometimes it's a challenge to love them, to forgive them, to show mercy to them. But that's what God wants to do in your life. That's what he wants to do in my life. Can we allow him to continue to transform us? God, thank you for the way you work in us. Thank you for the life you wanna give us. You wanna set us free from all the hurt and all the bondage and all the anger the intensity that we live with so much of the time. You wanna give us peace towards others. You wanna give us love, forgiveness, grace that we can show mercy easily, quickly. God, would you help us to continue to grow, to gain your heart towards others, experience your healing and, and your goodness that you wanna do in us so that we can love the way you love, so that we can avoid the sin trap of favoritism. But we can treat everyone the way you treat them. We pray this in Jesus' name.